In this true crime series, we're investigating 10 crimes that are recorded in the Bible. We're exploring the who, what, and why of each crime. But more importantly, we want to learn how the Lord God responded to each of these crimes, as well as what we can learn from them. But before we get to today's episode, I just want to thank those of you who support Time of Grace by engaging with the many different kinds of Bible content we offer, by telling your friends and relatives about Time of Grace, and by financially supporting the work we do. Thank you from all of us at Time of Grace. The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking with one of my colleagues at Time of Grace about this podcast episode. I mentioned to her that in this episode, we would investigate the crimes committed by a man named Barabbas. Her response was, Do we know enough about Barabbas for you to do an entire episode about him? Well, yes and no. No, we don't have many historical details about Barabbas. On the other hand, the investigation into what happened with Barabbas will uncover some unique perspectives and contrasts that involve events in both the Old and New Testaments. Today's episode will uncover a couple of Bible threads that span centuries. So let's get started. To understand the circumstances involving Jesus and Barabbas, I think it will be helpful if we first established what was going on in the geopolitical world at the time of Jesus. To get the big picture, let's go back to the time of the prophet Daniel and start there. Now, Daniel was taken into captivity by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C., and he would live his entire life in Babylon. One day, Daniel had a vision that predicted and depicted four world empires, the Babylonian Empire, the Mede and Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. It's an amazing vision that predicted the future. Daniel lived during the time of the Babylonian Empire, but he would also see it come to an end with the assassination of Babylon's last king, King Belshazzar. In Daniel chapter 5, we learn that King Belshazzar gave a banquet to a thousand of his nobles. At this party, Belshazzar ordered that the gold and silver goblets that King Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem to be used at the banquet. What followed next was incredible. A human hand appeared and wrote on the wall of the banquet hall the words, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Nobody at the party knew what the words meant. So at the suggestion of the queen, Daniel was summoned to interpret the handwriting on the wall. And the meaning of the words? 
well, Belshazzar's reign would come to an end, and the Babylonian Empire would be given to the Medes and Persians. That very night, Belshazzar was assassinated. Well, that didn't take long for the writing on the wall to be fulfilled, did it? Later, under the Persian king Cyrus, the exiled Jews living in Babylon were allowed to return to the land of Judea. The year was 539 BC. The return of the Jews to Judea is chronicled in the Bible books of 2 Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. About 200 years later, the land of Judea was conquered by Alexander the Great in the year 332 BC fulfilling Daniel's vision of a third world empire, the Greek Empire. When Alexander the Great died ten years later, at a relatively young age, the massive Greek Empire was split up into regions by Alexander's generals. One of the generals, Seleucus, became the ruler of the eastern part of the empire from Babylon to Judea. This region became known as the Seleucid Empire which existed from 312 to 63 BC. However, during this time, the Jewish people rebelled against Seleucid rule. Leading the rebellion was a man by the name of Simon Maccabeus, who was successful in the rebellion. Then, for the next 80 years, the Jewish people were ruled by Maccabeus and his descendants. This 80-year period of Jewish independence was known as the Hasmonean Dynasty, named after Maccabeus's ancestor, Hasmonius. The point of this last history lesson is to point out that the Old Testament Jewish people had a history of rebellion and revolt, and that has relevance for our episode today. The Greek Empire came to an end in 63 BC and marked the beginning of the Roman Empire, the fourth empire in Daniel's vision. During 63 BC, Roman general Pompey conquered the land of Judea and Jerusalem. Herod, also known as Herod the Great, was appointed to rule the land of Judea, and he would rule until 4 BC. Herod the Great was the one responsible for giving the order to have all of the baby boys of Bethlehem killed after the Magi had come looking for the king of the Jews. Now, if you want to learn more about Herod the Great, I have a true crimes episode that investigates the crimes of both the Herods who are mentioned in the Bible, Herod the Great and Herod Antipas. When Herod the Great died, the territory he had ruled was divided up. His son, Herod Antipas, was given a small area to rule, Galilee and Perea. Perea was located on the southeast side of the Jordan River, with Gal Galilee located on the northwest side of the river. Herod Antipas was the Herod that we meet during Jesus' trial under Pontius Pilate who was the Roman governor of both Judea and Samaria. Recall that Galilee was in the north and Judea in the south, with Samaria sandwiched between them. Well, that's the geopolitical background to the story of Jesus' arrest and trial. And yet there is one more political perspective that we should mention. 
It was the political position of the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law, and the priests. Although Rome was in charge of the country, the Jewish religious leaders still had great influence over the people. As Jesus' popularity continued to grow throughout his three-year ministry, these religious leaders started to get nervous, especially after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. In the Gospel of John, we learn about what happened after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. So, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. After Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus, Caiaphas the high priest held an inquisition in which they found Jesus supposedly guilty of blasphemy, a crime punishable by death. But since the religious leaders didn't have the authority to carry out capital punishment, they dragged Jesus off to Governor Pilate for trial suggesting to him that Jesus had committed treason. It is at Jesus' trial before Pilate that we meet Barabbas. As I said earlier, we don't have a lot of details about Barabbas. But this is what we know from the four gospel accounts. All four biographers of Jesus' life and ministry mention Barabbas. John's gospel mentions that Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Now, actually, the word translated as uprising doesn't reflect the shading of the original Greek word that John used. John referred to Barabbas specifically as a bandit or a robber. Luke's gospel records that Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Mark's gospel indicates that Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. So the murder Barabbas had committed took place during the insurrection to overthrow the Roman government. Because of his crimes, Barabbas faced the death penalty, death by crucifixion. Some scholars suggest that Barabbas was a member of the Zealots. The Zealots were a Jewish political movement in the first century that sought to incite the Jewish people to rebel against the Roman Empire. And recall, Jesus chose Simon to be one of his disciples. Not Simon Peter, but Simon the Zealot. Matthew's Gospel gives us a couple of additional details about Barabbas. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. Barabbas was well-known by the people. Perhaps he was the actual leader of the insurrection. 
and his first name was Jesus. Imagine that. Now, the name Jesus was a common name among the Jewish people. In Hebrew, it is the word Yeshua, translated into English as Joshua. When translated into the New Testament Greek language, Yeshua becomes Jesus, which translated into English becomes Jesus. Both Yeshua and Jesus mean Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. Because the name Jesus was so popular, Jesus is frequently called Jesus of Nazareth to distinguish him from others with the same first name. Okay, that's some background on the name Jesus. What about the name Barabbas? In Hebrew, the name Barabbas is comprised of two Hebrew words, bar, meaning son of, and abbas, which means father. So the name Barabbas means son of the father. Now, Matthew, in the biographical sketch that he penned, explained the contrast of these two Jesuses this way. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. Well, we have a couple of things here to unpack. First, the governor's custom to release a prisoner during Passover, a prisoner chosen by the people. Passover was a Jewish festival that began on the 15th day of the Hebrew month of Nisan, and no connection to the Nissan car company. Passover commemorated, and still does today, the Israelites' exodus from Egypt under the leadership of Moses. And by the way, because the Jewish calendar is a lunar one, Passover always falls on a full moon in either March or April of our Western calendar. And for Christians, Easter is always celebrated the Sunday after that full moon. Now, what about this custom of releasing a prisoner at Passover? I don't know of any historian, Jewish, Christian, or secular, who thinks this was a custom of the Roman Empire. There is no evidence of it in Roman history, nor would a pagan people be likely to have such a custom. More likely, this custom of releasing a prisoner began during the Hasmonean dynasty, which we talked about earlier. Toward the end of this dynasty, in the year 67 BC, there was a nasty civil war in Judea, over who would become the next ruler of the Hasmonean Jewish crown. This civil war pitted Jew against Jew. After the conflict subsided and a new ruler was recognized, the thought was that a political prisoner release by the Hasmonean dynasty would be a good public relations move. It was designed to bring about unity among the previous warring factions so they could set aside their political positions and celebrate Passover as one people. Then, after the Romans conquered Judea four years later, 
it seems likely that the Jewish religious leaders asked the Roman leaders to continue this custom of freeing a political prisoner on the evening before Passover. To honor the custom of releasing a prisoner the day, the day before Passover, Pilate offered the crowd gathered at the trial of Jesus a choice. Do you want me to release to you Jesus Barabbas or Jesus the Messiah? In referring to Jesus as the Messiah, this must have really irritated the Jewish religious leaders who wanted Jesus dead. Governor Pilate knew that the religious leaders had brought Jesus to him for trial out of self-interest. They wanted to maintain their power over the people. From their perspective, Jesus had to go. So when Pilate gave the people a choice, Matthew tells us that the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Let's pause here for a moment and consider one of the great contrasts with the encounter of Barabbas and Jesus. Barabbas was a guilty man. He was a robber, a bandit. He was a murderer. He was an insurrectionist who actually tried to overthrow the Roman government in Judea. By contrast, Jesus was an innocent man. At least that was the conclusion that Pontius Pilate came to at the trial. When the crowds were calling for Jesus to be crucified, Pilate responded, Why? What crime has he committed? Pilate found Jesus to be innocent of the charges brought against him by the self-serving Jewish religious leaders. But there's more. During Jesus' trial, Pilate's wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Pilate's wife also concluded that Jesus was innocent. And there's more. Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Herod Antipas was pleased to meet Jesus. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a, a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. So Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. In other words, Jesus was being accused of uh, being an insurrectionist. Pilate continued, I have examined him in your presence, and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Governor Pilate, Pilate's wife, and Herod Antipas all came to the same verdict. Jesus was innocent. Pilate continued to address the crowd. 
Therefore I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Barabbas was guilty of murder and insurrection. He was headed for the crucifixion cross, but he would now go free. Jesus, on the other hand, was innocent. He had committed no crime, yet he would be crucified. The innocent for the guilty. The guilty set free, and the innocent to die. If there is one thing for us to take away from this account of Jesus and Barabbas, it's this, the innocent for the guilty. But this wasn't anything new in God's way of thinking, the innocent for the guilty, in what we might call God's economy of justice. God's justice has always operated with the concept of the innocent for the guilty. You see, there's a, a Bible thread in the story of Jesus and Barabbas that takes us back to two Old Testament events, both revealed to us in the book of Exodus. The first example is when the Lord God instituted what became known as the Passover. The Israelites had been living in Egypt for more than 400 years. Under the leadership of Moses, the Lord God would lead them out of Egypt to return to the land of Canaan that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants. The problem was that the Pharaoh of Egypt would not let them leave. So the Lord God sent a series of plagues to force Pharaoh into letting God's people go. The tenth and final plague would cause Pharaoh to send the Israelites out of Egypt. With the tenth plague, every firstborn in Egypt, whether human or animal, would die. To spare the Israelites from this plague, the Lord God instructed the Israelites to select either a year-old sheep or goat without defect. Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that door doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. The one-year-old Passover lamb or goat without defect would give its life so that others could live. The second example is from what the Lord God established at Mount Sinai as the Day of Atonement. This day occurred once a year. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would select three animals, 
a young bull, and two male goats, which would serve as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. The high priest would offer the bull for his own sin offering, both for himself and his household. He would take some of the bull's blood and sprinkle it seven times on the Ark of the Covenant, which was located in the most holy place of the tabernacle. He would then take one of the goats selected by Lot and sacrifice it as a sin offering for all the people. He would then take the blood of the goat and sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant as well, as atonement for the sins of the people. Finally, he would place both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all of the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He would send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat would carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. The three animals on the Day of Atonement would give their lives so that others could live. The innocent for the guilty. From Egypt to Sinai to Jesus' trial before Governor Pilate. So here's the big question for today. Do you see yourself in Barabbas? He was destined for death but found freedom and life through the death of another. You and I were destined to eternal death because we failed to live the perfect life that God expects of us. Thankfully, Jesus stepped into this world to live that perfect life for us and to die on Calvary's cross to buy us freedom and life with God that will last forever. The innocent for the guilty. True Crimes, Bible Edition 2. In our next episode, we'll meet a whole slew of criminals who committed crimes against Jesus on that first Good Friday. If you have any comments or questions regarding this episode or any other, I'd love to hear from you. Email me at bruce at timeofgrace.org. Thanks for listening, and God bless.